Let's turn in our Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews, as you see fit, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's signet ring, may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time, in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds, sired by the royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble, and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews should be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out in Susa, the capital. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province, and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews 
had fallen on them. In verse 1, it tells us that King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman. All that Haman owned, the enemy of the Jews who had plotted to destroy all of them, including Mordecai, and especially because of Mordecai, Haman's house, everything he possessed, was handed over to Queen Esther. What he owned, what all he possessed, was given to her. And then Queen Esther disclosed to the king what Mordecai was to Esther. And therefore, he knew that the two of them were Jews and that Mordecai was a relative of Esther and had brought her up when her parents had passed away. Not only did that happen, in verse 2, it tells us that the king took off his signet ring He took it away from Haman, who was the number two ruler in the whole realm. He took it away from Haman before his execution, and then he gave it to Mordecai. Now Mordecai is the number two ruler in all the land. This is similar to what happened to Joseph in Egypt in Genesis chapter 41. He became the second ruler uh, next to Pharaoh. Well, then Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Mordecai had authority over all the possessions of Haman. That is, the people or the relatives of Haman, his descendants, his wife, his descendants, and all that he possessed, his house, his property, and any kind of treasure that Haman had, it was all given to Mordecai. Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman. Now, the the evil scheme, which was conducted and confirmed by a decree earlier, a couple of months before, actually in the first month of the year, it was decreed by the king's signet ring, which Haman had. Haman desired to destroy the Jews, but he didn't tell the king exactly who the people were in any relationship to Esther or anything like that. And this is what rulers often do. They often don't read about those policies, laws, decrees that they enforce. They have other people do it, and then it just has the king's okay. That even happens today. Sometimes people write long documents, like 2,000 pages long, and enforce it upon everybody else, but he has never read what he just signed into law. And that, that's what happened earlier in the book. But at this time, Esther reminds the king that the evil that was perpetrated, proposed to be perpetrated against the Jews, has to be overthrown. It has to be, it has to be contradicted in order for them to spare their lives. Well, in order to do so, Esther, for a second time, came to the king unsummoned. She gathered up courage, knowing that the king had already some favor towards her, more favor than other people. She came again in verse 4. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. She approached him, and then he extended his golden scepter. This is what happened in chapters uh, 4 and 5, where Esther was concerned that she might be put to death coming unsummoned. But again, as it happened in chapters 4 and 5, also here in verse 4, the king extended the golden scepter so that Esther was not put to death, 
Instead, whatever her petition was, he wanted to know. This time, Esther does not delay with a banquet or anything like that. She tells him, verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if I, if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. That letter and decree was what Haman wanted to destroy the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. She approaches him because the evil still has to be contradicted and averted. It has to be avoided. That decree still stood. And she says in verse 6, For how can I endure to see the calamity or evil which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? She's concerned about her own people. She knows that her life was spared and Mordecai's life was spared. Mordecai is now the second ruler. But this decree is still out there. And the enemies of the Jews throughout the kingdom, they have the permission to kill and annihilate all the Jews. And she doesn't want to see that. She loves her people. She loves her neighbor as herself. She's employing the second greatest commandment, which is good and right and righteous to do. Verse 7, So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. He threatened to massacre all the Jews and even Esther and Mordecai. I've already given this part to you. You know that that was right. That was a matter of justice. I did that. And now I'm going to also give you the rest of your people. Not only your lives, but the rest of them, the rest of the Jews. Verse 8. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and use the king's signet ring. Write a decree, seal it, and then it cannot be revoked. The, this um, irrevocable decree, we have seen that this was mentioned earlier in chapter 1, verse 19, that the Persian, Medes and the Persians had irrevocable decrees. Once a decree was issued, it could not be overthrown. It could not be annulled or abolished. This also we see in Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. There too, the officials of the Persian Empire they told the king to write a decree that could not be revoked, that could not be altered. That was their custom. So what needs to be done to help out the Jews? What needs to be done is a second decree or counter decree, a counter edict has to be issued so that the Jews have the ability to do something to help themselves. Because the enemies of the Jews already have the permission to murder the Jews. Now the Jews need a decree to defend themselves. And, and that's what we see in verses 9 to 14. In verses 9 to 14, we have this second decree or a counter decree that's issued in order for the Jews to be able to defend themselves. Not to go out as bloodthirsty people, but in order to defend themselves. We'll see how the text makes that point. Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews and all the other officials. It was done 
according to the king's scribes, and whatever Mordecai told them to write, they wrote it. And this decree, just as uh, the earlier decree in chapter 3, was written in the language of all the peoples throughout the whole empire, because there would have been many, many different languages spoken. And they wanted to make sure that just as all these people got the first decree, this counter-decree should also be read and understood by those same people because the Jews lived everywhere throughout the empire. Verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. See, not only was it sealed by the king's signet ring, but the horses were known to be horses that were in the service of the palace, in the service of the king. These messengers, the couriers, were the king's couriers. Just as in the first instance, now in this instance, we have this assurance that the people receiving these letters, the decrees, are knowing this is also coming from the king. They have that certainty. Now, what is the content of it? Verse 11 tells us, Verse 11, in them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. They have about nine months left to prepare themselves in order to carry out this part of the decree. And what is is that part? What are they able to do? They are able to assemble because if they assemble as a group, then they can help to defend one another. They are able to assemble. They're able to defend their lives. Notice there, it's a matter of self-defense to defend their lives. And in defending their lives, they were not just permitted to stop the attack and remain neutral from that point onwards, but it says there, to defend their lives, and what does that include? To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. They had the permission to defend their own lives if any people attacked them. See, they were not to be the instigators of any violence. They were allowed to defend themselves in case their enemies instigated the violence. They were able to defend themselves upon instigation and even to plunder the spoil. We'll see later in chapter 9 that they had the ability... They had the permission by this decree to plunder the spoil of their enemies when that actually happened. But they didn't do it. It shows that they were not concerned about wealth. They were not trying to get rich. They just wanted their own life saved. They just wanted to have their own life. They didn't want money, possessions. They were not after that. They were not uh, greedy or covetous people. But they were given the permission, yet they didn't use the permission to do so. Well, verse 13, 
it says that the copy went everywhere to each and every province, was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews should be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. When they defend themselves, it says here that they are able to avenge themselves. Because of the civil law, this magistrate, this king who gave them this permission, they were permitted to avenge themselves. This too is something that's unique. Unique to civil authorities and governmental permission. When the government permits the avenging of a wrong, and it is according to the will of God, then it's okay to avenge wrong. This is a corporate, community, national situation. It's not talking about personal vengeance. It's talking about corporate vengeance. And there is a place in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, for corporate vengeance, for defense and protection and even retaliation when somebody instigates something against us. It is possible to do justice by avenging ourselves. Verse 14. They did this very quickly. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out in Susa, the capital. They went out quickly, and even in the capital, it was received. And wherever it was received, verse 15 says, that wherever it was received in Susa, the capital, and every other place, according to verses 15 and 17, there was joy and there was gladness and the Jews were shouting. They were very, very happy that they could defend themselves upon attack. As well, it says in verse 15, that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Mordecai, with the signet ring and with all of this attire from the palace, he was clearly elevated. He was clearly elevated and known by the people to be carrying out the king's business. That was an indication, a token to them that God's favor was with them because this Mordecai, who was about to be put to death, actually now became the second ruler of the kingdom. And the favor that was given to him was a foretaste of the favor that they would receive later in the 12th month. They received it in terms of the decree at this time, but they would receive it later in the 12th month. Now, when they did receive this news, it also says that they held a feast and a holiday. This is what they did in order to remember and to reflect upon this good thing that God had given to them. They commemorated it. They showed their, their desire to, to celebrate and to praise God as a community to assemble together and do so. Finally, we see in verse 17, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews. They became Jews. They converted from paganism to the faith. They converted from false gods to the true God. And they converted from no salvation to salvation in Christ. They believed in the gospel that the Jews explained to them. 
And what happened? Or why did that happen? It says, For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. There was this overwhelming dread that fell upon these people when they saw God's favor on the Jews. They became terrified and wanted to make sure they had the favor of God just as the Jews had the favor of God. They wanted to make sure. And that's why they came to faith. They came to faith because they saw the hand of God, favorable hand of God, on the Jews. Again, the motivation, what they saw was the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. That's why they did so. All right, now a few implications from what we've just seen here in chapter 8. Going back to verse 1, it says that King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman to Queen Esther. The king is the one in authority, and he's giving Esther, and even in verse 2, Mordecai, authority. The king has authority, and he's giving it to Esther and Mordecai. Even though the king is doing so, it is a human action. We have to keep in mind that he does not do it unless it is the will of God. Unless it's the will of God. Daniel chapter 4 teaches us this truth. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel four seventeen. This is in reference to King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, idolatrous king. He was given a vision of what would happen to him. Daniel 4.17 This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. The angels are commissioned to make sure that, the, that this is done and understood, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it, bestows the rulership on wh whom he wishes, sets, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. Men think they're great, but they're really not. They're really lowly people. Everyone, basically, is a lowlife. Everybody is a loser, according to God. In terms of their station, they are on the earth and he is in heaven and he controls who rules over kingdoms. And in this case, even though it's Ahasuerus giving it to Esther and Mordecai, it's actually God doing this. He is appointing this to happen. And this also happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4.24 The interpretation of this vision, Daniel 4.24 this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you may be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes." Nebuchadnezzar had to be made into an insane person. He became like an, uh, an animal, like cattle that ate grass for seven years until he realized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. Well, verse 34. 
after the seven years, Daniel 4.34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar realized this truth, it happened, so happens, that in our study of Esther, Haman was the one humbled, and then God exalted and elevated Mordecai in due time. Jesus taught this same truth. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, who was about to crucify Jesus, John 19, 11, Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And one last example on this point is Acts chapter 12. You remember that Herod addressed a crowd of people. He addressed a crowd of people, and the crowd, during his address, they cried out, they shouted out the following. Acts 12, verse 22. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Herod was put down. God got rid of him just like that because he took praise that should have been given to God. He was not a God. There is no God but the one true and living God. Yet he did not deflect that praise. And because he did not deflect it, God chose to put him to death then and there. Immediately, it says, God put him to death. Now, we need to recognize this truth so that we might not lose heart, that we might know God is the ruler and that in due time, he will elevate whomever he wants and he'll demote whomever he wants. He's the great promoter and the great demoter of mankind and all the rulers. The rulers don't control everything that goes on. Ultimately, it's God who does that. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, another truth we should recognize is this transference of authority, the giving of lowly people, in this case Esther, who is just one of the women throughout the realm. She was elevated to be, be a queen. And then Mordecai, who was one of the servants or officials of the king, he was about to be put to death and there was a turn of events. He became the second ruler and his enemy was the one put to death. In the case of Joseph, Joseph in Egypt, this happened to him. 
He also nearly experienced death at the age of 17 when his brothers sought to lay hands on him. They decided, however, to sell him as a slave. And then from age 17 to age 30, he underwent affliction as a slave and mistreated in Egypt for 13 years. But then at age 30, there was a dream that Pharaoh had. No one could interpret it. Joseph was able to interpret it by the wisdom of God. And then Pharaoh made Joseph the second ruler. This is Genesis 41, 37 to 46. Genesis 41, verses 37 to 46. He was elevated in due time by the will of God. The truth also applies to us. Whenever these things happen in Scripture, whether it's Joseph, Esther, Mordecai, or anybody else who is near death or very afflicted, and then suddenly there is a miracle that occurs and then that person is elevated, this is a token, not that it happens in every circumstance to the people of God, but it happens enough and it happens in the Bible to teach us to put our hope in God because one day that will be true of us. It will be true of us in eternity. On the day of judgment, for example, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Revelation 2, 26. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. We who overcome, who keep the deeds of Christ until the end, Christ will give us authority over the nations. We'll rule them with a rod of iron. We'll even break them in pieces as the potter breaks his pottery to pieces. Chapter 3 and verse... 9, chapter 3 and verse 9. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. The false Jews, who are Jews externally but not internally because they don't have true faith in Christ, he calls them the synagogue of Satan. And he says that he's going to make them bow down at our feet and to know that Christ has loved us. He's going to humiliate them and exalt us in due time. Also, Revelation 3.21. 3.21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We who overcome will sit with Christ on the throne because we overcame. Just as he overcame and sat, we shall overcome and sit. And does that include us? Let's make that very clear. Revelation 5 makes it clear that that includes us. We Gentiles, because we are believers, not because we're Gentiles, but because we are believers in Christ and have the internal circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God 
with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And they will reign upon the earth. We are now a kingdom and priests to our God because we are the ones from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation purchased by Christ. Further, let's notice back in Esther. Esther chapter 8, Esther chapter 8 and verse 6. Esther, in verse 6, had a true love of her people. She had a true love of her neighbor. She says, how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? You may recall that she did intervene like this in chapter 7 and verse 3. She said some similar words about herself, a petition about herself and for her people. This is her application of the second greatest commandment. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 7.12 says, As you would have others to do for you, do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Wouldn't the people out there want help from Esther? And, and if Esther were in that situation, wouldn't she want help from the people? It's a reciprocal need. It's a reciprocal relationship. They both have need, and if they were in need, they would want the other who has the ability to help the one in need. This is what is being practiced here. This is something that we need to practice ourselves. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus said. John 13, 34, and 35. So when we see one another in need, we need to act. We need to speak up. We need to do something so that life is spared. As well, it says in Proverbs 24, verse 11, 24, 11, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. We can't say that. We can't say, hey, listen, we didn't know this. We didn't know anything about it. We can't pretend ignorance because it says in verse 12, does he, God, not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul and will he not render to man according to his work? Better watch out. We can't say we're ignorant because God knows the heart. He's the one that keeps our souls. He's the one that has our souls in his hands and he'll pay us according to our work. He'll repay us according to our deeds, whether they are good deeds or evil deeds. Another truth that we can learn from this is this matter of self-defense. In verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, remember that the counter-edict gave them the permission to defend their lives, 8.11, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, which might attack them. We'll, we also see in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, 
Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. It was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. They hated them and they were hoping to gain, to gain the mastery. That is, they were going to attack them. In verse 2 it says, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. The people, their enemies, sought their harm. They hated them, they hated the Jews, and they sought to harm the Jews. So self-defense was employed. The scriptures even give the Christians, give us Christians, permission to defend ourselves. Let's see a few examples. One is the parable that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus explains this parable. He's teaching us to pray, but in this prayer, we are asking God for justice. Luke 18, verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he de delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's included in this prayer? It's a, a call to pray repeatedly, consistently, without losing hope. But the, the issue is that the widow needed justice. She wanted justice. And if an unjust judge can give her justice because of her persistence, the, the truth is that God will give us justice if we plead with him, if we ask him. And when he brings about justice for us, when he delivers us from harm, won't the criminal, won't the perpetrator be punished by God? When we pray for justice, when we pray for God to help us, He's going to not only help us, but he's going to put the burden on those who attack us, those who are our enemies. Our foes will receive the justice due to them. She's asking for justice. Justice is two-sided. It helps the victim, and it punishes the criminal. Justice has both sides. Then justice is meted out. If justice is only toward one side, then it's not justice. It's not proper justice. Justice has to include both. Jesus believed in justice. Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25 is another case. Paul the Apostle is pleading for his life because he's imprisoned with false charges 
And in Acts 25, he is before Festus, the governor. He's before Festus. And in Acts 25, verse 9. Actually, we'll start at verse uh, 8. Acts 25, verse 8. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. He's claiming I've committed no religious crime or civil crime. No religious crime or civil crime. I've done not, neither of those. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Instead of going to Jerusalem, where it would have been a mockery, and he even may have been assassinated on the way to Jerusalem, instead of going there, Paul said, No, this is Caesar's tribunal in the city where the governor was. This is where I ought to be tried. I'm right here before you, and this is where it's supposed to happen. I haven't done anything wrong. And even if I did do something wrong, I am not such a lawless man that I would refuse to die. If I did something wrong, if I committed a crime against the law, then okay, put me to death. He knew he didn't, and so he insisted that he receive justice, that the government do what they're supposed to do, that is carry out justice. He insisted that that happen. And that's good. That's the thing that Esther was pleading for. She was pleading for justice for her own people to defend themselves. Another truth that we can learn from this passage is found in verses 15 to 17. In verses 15 to 17, we saw how the Jews shouted, rejoiced, held a festival and a holiday. They were very overjoyed to hear about this counter edict, that the possibility of them defending themselves was out there. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to know that they will receive justice and their enemies will receive punishment. It's okay, it's good, and it's actually righteous for us to understand justice like this, that we will receive what we deserve and our enemies will receive what they deserve. To see examples of this, let's go to Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 28. Proverbs 28, 28. When the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish the righteous increase. But when they perish, the righteous increase. We hide ourselves because we fear for our lives when the wicked rise, but then we increase. We are able to go out and move about. We're able to have a better livelihood when they perish. 
when we have a better livelihood, are, are we not going to be more happy? We're going to be happier if we're able to move about freely than if we're hiding in caves, wondering who's around the corner. Chapter 28, Proverbs 28, verse 12. 28, 12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. They're very honored and they're happy about the honor and glory that has come about because they were delivered. Chapter 29, Proverbs 29, verse 2, 29, 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. There is joy when they increase, but there's groaning and moaning when wicked men rule. Verse 4, 29, 4. The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. When the king executes justice, he gives stability to the land. When there's stability, there's going to be peace, there's going to be harmony, there's going to be joy. If there's instability, chaos, anarchy, everybody's terrified. They don't know what's going to happen to them when they walk out of their house, and even in their house, and even while they're sleeping. They don't know what's going to happen. Verse 6, Proverbs 29, 6. By transgression, an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. The righteous sings and rejoices. Why does he sing and rejoice when the, when the evil man is ensnared by his transgression? The righteous sings and rejoices. When he is trapped in the snare he made for other people, when he gets the punishment upon him, the righteous sings and rejoices. So, we see this in Proverbs. We'll also see it in Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, verse 20. When Babylon the Great falls, when Babylon the Great falls, which includes people, because it's the people who commit sins, transgressions, and many lawless deeds against God. When Babylon the Great falls, what happens? Revelation 18.20 Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Judgment or justice was meted out by God for us against Babylon the Great. And who's supposed to rejoice? This is a command, an imperative. Rejoice. Be happy. Over what? Over her. O heaven, meaning the angels, and you saints, that's all of us, and the apostles and the prophets. They're all supposed to, we all are supposed to rejoice. Now, lest we think that in this age in which we live, we're not supposed to rejoice. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 
Some may say, Revelation 18, that happens at the very end, that's on the day of judgment, when this world is all over. However, we do have instances, and this is one example. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, the Apostle Paul says these words. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. We say Maranatha. Songs are written about Maranatha. People call themselves and call groups and other things after Maranatha. Maranatha is a term of joy. It's an expression, an exclamation of joy and happiness. Maranatha means, Oh Lord, come. When we think about the Lord's return, the hopeful expectation of His return, people say Maranatha, Oh Lord, come. And that's a good thing. But that good thing, that hope, is coupled with this curse upon those who refuse to repent of their sins. If anyone does not love the Lord, the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. The two truths are not contradictory in the Bible. They're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. We rejoice in what God, who He is, His character, His attributes, and we rejoice in what He does on our behalf. We rejoice in our redemption. We rejoice that in carrying out justice to protect us and to inflict punishment on our enemies. All of this is for the display of His righteousness and His glory forever and ever. Amen. So we should too. Just as the Jews did in Esther, we should and we will do that in the future. One more point, one more truth that we can learn from Esther 17. Uh, 8.17, Esther 8.17, it says that the dread of the Jews had fallen on them, and therefore many became believers. Many became Jews. We have cases of people who were Gentiles in the Old Testament becoming Jews for one incident or another that happened to them, one preaching of the gospel that they received or another preaching of it. Remember that Rahab the harlot in Joshua chapter 2, she heard about how God delivered the Jews from Egypt, the people of Israel from Egypt, and how the Egyptians were destroyed. She heard about that, and she helped the spies, and according to Joshua chapter 2, and Hebrews 11.31, and James 2.25, she had true faith, which showed in her works. But Rahab was from Canaan. She was not only from Canaan, that's one thing she had against her. The second thing she had against her was that she was a prostitute. She was a harlot. She was practicing wickedness. The third thing she had against her was being in the land of Canaan, she worshipped idols. She worshipped idols. She was of a different ethnicity. She was a prostitute and she worshipped idols. She believed in the gospel and she was spared. We have cases such as Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh. He preached the gospel to the Ninevites. The Ninevites believed in the gospel in the book of Jonah. And Jesus reiterates the fact that they were true believers in Luke 11, 29 to 32. Luke 11, 29 to 32 and Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Jesus confirmed that they became true believers. They believed in the gospel. 
This happens throughout the Old Testament. It happens throughout history. That the people of the Jews who have the truth are the means, they are the channel and the conduit for others to hear the truth and believe in the gospel. Now, what was it that they had to see in the Jews? What was it that they had to see in the Jews and by the word of the Jews? It says in Esther 8.17, why did did these many people convert? It says, "For, for or because the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. The dread of the Jews had fallen on them. They understood that the Jews had the favor of God and that if they did not have the favor of God, just as the Jews had, that God would punish them. They had to hear about judgment. They had to hear about punishment. They had to hear about God's retribution upon them if they didn't follow the Jews who had the favor of God. This is true according to Jesus' words in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 6. Matthew 18, verse 6. We'll actually begin at verse 1. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoever believes in Christ, in verse 6, we have to see the people who are attempting to do harm to the believers in Christ, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, whoever believes in Christ should not have any kind of injustice perpetrated against him. And the people who do that kind of sin, that evil, they need to know, you better watch out. It's better that you have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and you be thrown into the sea than you do harm to any believer in Christ. Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 6 is another example. This one will make it more clear that unbelievers need to know this and hear this as a warning, as a potential motivation for them to understand, heed the gospel, and repent of their sins. Revelation 18, 6. Paul's preaching the gospel. However, he has some opposition. I'm sorry, I said uh, Acts. Uh, Acts 18.6, not Revelation. Acts 18.6. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. They resisted and blasphemed. Paul shook out his garments and said to them, He shook out his garments as dust is shaken off garments because it's worthless. 
It, it deserves to be thrown off. That's the way the people are. And because they behave this way, their blood, the guilt of their own sin is on their own heads. They're going to be punished. Paul's clean, and he's going to go to Gentiles. He's going to find people among the Gentiles who, who will listen. They wouldn't listen, but he goes there. But before he goes there, he announces to them this warning. If you don't repent, you have the sentence of death on your heads. You better repent, or else you'll have the sentence of death. He's putting fear in them. He's trying to put fear in them, dread, because of their mistreatment of him. And lastly, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, we read this earlier. We read this earlier that if they don't, if people don't know now, they will know in the future. Jesus will make sure that they know that they should have feared us, they should have dreaded us because of our our possession of the gospel and their refusal to listen to what we were preaching to them. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know, to know that I have loved you. If they don't know now and repent now with the warning, with the fear of God now, they will know in the future. It's better to know now than to know later. Now is better than later. And that's a part of our duty when we explain the gospel to people. We have to tell them that forgiveness of sins is possible contingent upon repentance. And if they don't repent and they mistreat us, they are mistreating God they're de defaming and defacing Christ when they harm us, when they ridicule us, when they silence us. They better be ready. They need to know that because when people hear that, there will be a few who hear that who ultimately repent of sin. Just as the dread of the Jews fell on them in Esther, the dread of us will fall on them and they will come and seek after us and say, hey, you know, I am... I, I know I'm guilty, I'm sorry, and I've got to repent of my sins. I want you to help me uh, understand the gospel better. I want to come to Christ. That's the kind of thing that has to happen. It won't happen if we don't tell them about the contingency of repentance. Repentance and forgiveness of sins goes, goes together. They need to have the fear of God instilled in them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.